Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. The novel coronavirus, or COVID-19, is a new coronavirus first identified in Wuhan, China in 2019 that has been rapidly spreading around the world. As of March 24, 2020, the CDC reported more than 44,000 identified cases in the U.S. The American Academy of Dermatology has developed a series of podcasts on this global health issue, including a roundtable discussion on the need to know science and issues for dermatologists, as well as interviews with experts on teledermatology and the author of a Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology article on steps taken in the dermatology outpatient department during the outbreak. Welcome to this special edition of Dialogues in Dermatology, an update on the coronavirus global pandemic and the American Academy of Dermatology's response. This is Shadi Karosh from the Department of Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital. And today I have the privilege of hosting a virtual roundtable discussion by phone with members of the American Academy of Dermatology's COVID-19 task force. Dr. Esther Freeman, Director of Global Health Dermatology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Chair of the AAD's Committee for Clinical Guidelines. Dr. Misha Rosenbach, Vice Chair for Education and Program Director in the Department of Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Lindy Fox, Director of the Hospital Consultation Service and Complex Medical Dermatology Fellowship in the Department of Dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco. And Dr. Scott Norton, Chief of the Dermatology Division at Children's National Health System in Washington, D.C., Professor of Dermatology and Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. To all of our panel, thank you so much for joining us. To begin, I'd like to start by asking Dr. Esther Freeman. Esther, you chair our AAD Clinical Guidelines Committee. This global pandemic in some parts of the world and now in parts of the U.S. is being compared to wartime conditions. And it's important to have clear instructions from our institutions in times like this. And I understand we have them. So can you tell us about what the guidelines for our clinicians in the COVID epidemic are? Where can they be found? And what are the overarching points? Thank you so much, Shadi, for the opportunity to talk about this. So the AAD, when coronavirus really started to become a pandemic and really started to affect all of us in terms of our clinical care and our decision-making, established a ad hoc task force called the COVID-19 Ad Hoc Task Force to try to really keep information relevant to dermatologists current and readily available in this rapidly changing and evolving environment that follows new legislation, regulatory guidance, and changes in clinical practice. On a personal level, I can say as a chair of the Clinical Guidelines Committee, this has dramatically changed how we produce clinical guidance for the AAD. So normally when we produce clinical guidance, we follow a very set criteria. It's evidence-based, providing a guideline to the AAD usually takes us at least a year, and it's a very involved process involving a large group of experts who are reviewing and grading clinical evidence through a process. A big shift we're having here, and I think, Shadi, you appropriately compared it to times of war, a big shift here is that we just don't have that body of evidence. What we're relying on are modeled predictions. Uh, We're relying on anecdotes. We're relying on case reports. And it's a completely different type of guidance than we've ever had to give as a group before. That being said, I do think we actually have a strong ethical obligation to provide guidance. Um, even though we're not exactly sure of the evidence base, and we realize that some of the guidance that we're giving you now will continue to evolve and may change in the coming weeks. I think that we do owe it to the Academy members and to the public at large to still 
produce some sort of guidance that our clinicians can rely on. So for that purpose, um, the Ad Hoc Task Force for Coronavirus has created a, a website that you can access through the AAD members portal, uh, and we've been updating these resources on a daily basis. Currently, it has four different tabs. So there's a section for in your clinic, in terms of your clinical practice and how you might want to screen patients before they come in. Um, there's a section on legislation and regulation, a section on teledermatology, and a section on managing your business. I think probably one of the more important changes that's happened this week is really changing that we need to, as dermatologists, defer non-essential care. And this is really a shift um, in terms of prioritizing patients who we want to keep out of the emergency department. So that might be a reason to see them. Or if there's a patient who has a potentially metastatic condition or might have a poor outcome, um, or the patient's condition requires really essential or in-person diagnostic or therapeutic procedures. So those would all be reasons that you would want to see a patient in your practice. But the reality is that for elective visits or for, for example, a traditional skin check, those are visits that you might want to defer until after the epidemic is over. So I think that's a pretty big shift in all of our clinical practice, and the, the guidance for that can be found on the American Academy of Dermatology website called Everyday Health and Preparedness Steps in Clinic. We've been moving over time even more and more into the area of evidence-based medicine in terms of how we produce guidelines. And now, to me, in some ways, it feels like we're going backward to expert opinion, which is how guidelines used to be developed. That being said, I think this is a necessary shift, and I think that we have to do our absolute best with the limited evidence that we have available. Thank you, Esther. Some really important points and resources. I was looking at the AAD's website for this, and I think it's excellent. I wanted to touch on a few points that you raised. In the spirit of wartime and emergent situations, it's interesting to think about rationing, rationing the visits that we can offer and rationing, for example, there's been talk of protective equipment and what the actual recommendations are in terms of the level of protection that's needed in situations where protective equipment has become scarce in different parts of the country. So could you all speak to that and what our recommendations are? Absolutely. I think the idea of limiting to essential and urgent visits only is twofold. One is the fact that you want to protect your patients and your staff from potential exposures because we know that a significant proportion of patients with coronavirus are actually going to be asymptomatic. So even if someone isn't coughing, we know that they, you still might get exposed from that patient. So that's one reason. The other reason is, as you mentioned, to preserve personal protective equipment for those who need it. So the idea being that by doing potentially unnecessary procedures at this time, we might be using personal protective equipment that should be saved for more important resources. And I think one thing that we'll get a chance to probably talk about a little bit later is the idea of that there are probably dermatology resources that we have in our own clinics that if we're not using right now, we may be able to contribute to the effort. So one of those, for example, is the viral swabs or the viral transport media that many of us have in our clinics and that the AD is putting up some guidance on how we might be able to donate some of those supplies to those most in need. I'm going back to the personal protective equipment comment, and I think others on this roundtable will probably have some comments here. I think this is a hugely challenging area. I can speak to a personal experience in terms of Mass General Hospital, where we are, as of just a few days ago, we're now required to wear a mask at all times in the hospital, regardless of what we're participating in. But a lot of hospitals around the country don't have that luxury and don't have those supplies. And we know that folks in New York City now are, are potentially having to reuse 
some of their personal protective equipment, things like N95 masks, which we're using specifically are involved in aerosol generating procedure in terms of coronavirus. So for example, those people that are performing intubations, which is dermatologists, we most likely are not doing right now. If you need to use an N95, we're finding out that people are having to reuse those N95s. And there's more and more guidance about how potentially to reuse personal protective equipment, which is, I have to say, a whole new world. I've never read so much about putting things in a 70 degree Celsius oven um, in terms of potentially killing the virus on your personal protective equipment in order to reuse it. So it's, it's really a challenging time. And I think that those guidelines are going to continue to change. Let's talk about a phrase we've been hearing a lot in the media, flattening the curve, and what it actually means. I serve as faculty advisor for one of the dormitories at Harvard College and watch the university close and go into virtual education. And I know that many institutions throughout the country have undergone those changes. I'd like to talk with you about the AAD's response to flattening the curve. And Misha, I understand that you've been very involved with that. So could you tell us a little bit about what form that's taken and why it's important? Sure, Shadi. Thanks for asking. So I think Esther touched on a lot of the reasons that we talk about flattening the curve. And I have to say that like for a term that probably none of us knew you know, three or four months ago, this is a term that's really taken off and is now recognized worldwide. There's some really nice explanations of this in both the New York Times and some data visualizations in the Washington Post that really show the power of spread and how flattening the curve can impact things. And the main principle is that, you know, as Esther touched on, patients can be asymptomatic in spreading this, and it spreads very rapidly from asymptomatic patient to someone else who then is spreading it while they're asymptomatic. And no matter how good and smart we all are, it's really hard to wrap our minds around things like exponential growth and the mathematics of someone bumping into however many people they come into contact with between when they're exposed and when they're symptomatic. And then even with mild symptoms, some patients you know, don't necessarily completely self-isolate. And so flattening the curve means that we have a limit in terms of our capacity in emergency rooms and hospitals, in terms of beds staff, personnel, supplies, ventilators, which you hear a lot about, uh, certainly in places like New York City, but you'll hear about it really all over shortly. And so what we want to make sure is that the rate of patients requiring high-level supportive care does not exceed the capacity that we have to supply that care. And so the more you're able to enforce strict social distancing, the fewer humans each person comes into contact with and the less and less spread there is. And there's, again, a, a couple of mathematical formulae and visualizations of this phenomenon where if you prevent one person from transmitting this to one person a month from now, that's an explosion of cases that you've prevented just by presenting one case now. And that's the power of sort of an exponential growth virus, but also the power of interrupting it. And so our role as dermatologists, we're the caretakers of skin disease. So we'll always be there for our patients especially our patients who really need urgent, acute, or emergent skin disease. But right now, emergency rooms are getting overwhelmed with COVID patients, and it's our job to keep our dermatology patients out of the ER. And we can do this with telemedicine many times, or at least teletriage to determine if a patient needs to be seen live. And by reducing the numbers of patients we're seeing, one, we're still taking care of our patients who need to be seen in a timely fashion and keeping them out of the ER where they could be exposed to COVID or could take valuable resources in terms of ER beds, space, and staff. Two, we're helping preserve the amount of personal protective equipment that exists, period, in this time of shortage by seeing fewer patients and not consuming as much gear as we otherwise would do. 
but three, we're also preventing the spread and contributing to the flattening of the curve. So dermatologists generally run sort of high volume practices where there are a lot of patients coming into the waiting room, sitting in the waiting room, coming through, seeing the providers. And if some of those patients have asymptomatic COVID, they're spreading it not just potentially to the staff or physician or team, but also to other patients in the waiting room. And that kind of back and forth exchange, and then basically those patients go back home and have household spreads. And so dermatologists, by continuing to have high volume practices for non-urgent conditions during this period, could contribute to the exponential growth. But by adhering to the guidelines that the AAD has done a nice job of summarizing on the AAD website that Esther alluded to, but also that come out of CMS and the the federal government of eliminating non-urgent visits really helps us do our part in flattening the curve, preserving personal protective equipment, stopping unnecessary spread, and helping ensure the health system has capacity to take care of the patients who really need care right now, while we continue to take care of the patients who urgently need dermatologic care. As you both have mentioned in some capacity, the information and guidance that we have is very much evolving and changing on a day-to-day basis and on a region-by-region basis, depending on how different communities and different states are affected. So what would be our guidance for individuals in different parts of the country to stay up to date on following instructions that are pertinent to them? Yeah, that's a great question with this, but I, and that, that can vary state to state. And it is really important to know that the AAD is doing a really good job of filtering and sharing critical information. But there are going to be some differences depending on both type of practice and where you practice in terms of what the actual guidelines are. And it's probably important for people to know that they should refer to their state guidelines also. And to add to that, Misha, as you had mentioned, that, for example, even this week, we've seen guidance coming out, as you mentioned, from New York that is potentially different than the federal guidance. And we've seen guidance, particularly in the last few days from Texas, which probably by the time people are listening to this will have changed again. That's really changing the scope of people's practice who are practicing in Texas. So I do think the state-to-state guidance is really important to pay attention to in terms of local guidance. And sometimes even local health departments that have different guidance for people in different cities. I think a question that's been on the mind of a lot of clinicians is the question of treatments during this time period. We are hearing in the media about a lot of experimental and controversial potential treatments, whether that's antimalarials, zinc, azithromycin, antivirals, HIV medications. And I think a lot are wondering what the evidence and guidance for these treatments actually are when their patients are asking these questions. And then there's also the question of medicines the patient might already be taking that could affect their condition with response to the coronavirus. For example, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines, or ACE inhibitors, or spironolactone. So I know that Lindy and I have had a conversation about this in the past. Lindy, could you comment on the potential evidence that's out there, what we know and what we don't know? Sure. Thanks, Shadi, for inviting me to speak today. And I really think that uh, the panel you have is quite phenomenal and I'm honored to be a part of it. In terms of medications, let's just start by saying that there is no strong evidence for much of anything, and all of this is, just like everything else, evolving very, very quickly. If we start first with the idea of hydroxychloroquine, it was a very small French study that looked at hydroxychloroquine with and without azithromycin in a very small group of patients, only 20 patients. There are lots of faults with that study. There was an improvement in viral load detected in patients who were on hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, but there were patients who were lost to follow-up, some that ended up in an ICU, and really very limited conclusions that can be drawn from that study. That being said, I do know at some academic institutions, 
patients are receiving hydroxychloroquine as part of um, therapeutic trials, but still in the trial phase. I think what we have to be really careful about is recognizing that many of the patients that we treat in dermatology, we treat with hydroxychloroquine. And now this medication is in short supply, especially for patients who we need to get it for. So I think we must absolutely be very careful about our prescriptions for this medication and certainly not be using it prophylactically in ourselves or others because we don't even know what its role is in the treatment of COVID-19. You also touched on some medications that we give patients that may or may not increase the infectivity for our patients. So this goes to the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptor, which is what the virus actually uses to enter into a cell. The expression of that ACE2 receptor can be modified by certain medications. And that would include those that act on the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which would be like ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blockers. And those are thought to perhaps increase the ACE2 receptor. If you look at the American College of Cardiology, they are not currently recommending stopping either ACE inhibitors or angiotensin receptor blocker medications in any of their patients, suggesting that the data are not clear and not strong enough to suggest stopping those medications. It also turns out that spironolactone may also increase the ACE2 receptor, but it is not clear if that would increase susceptibility to viral infection or not. So there is no current statement from the American Academy of Dermatology or other dermatology groups about whether or not spironolactone should be stopped in our patients who use it for acne, hirsutism, polycystic ovarian syndrome, or angiogenetic alopecia. And what about the question of biologics? I know that many clinicians may be wondering what the right thing to do is in this situation, as we have so many patients on biologic medications for various dermatologic conditions. Are we aware of any guidance in this regard? Shadi, thank you so much for bringing that up. So the very first piece of clinical guidance that we developed for the AAD ad hoc task force was actually on the use of biologic agents during the COVID-19 outbreak. There's some indirect data regarding upper respiratory tract infections in patients who are on various biologics. The challenge with some of this indirect data is that those studies are not really powered to address upper respiratory tracts. So, you know, it's challenging because we have indirect data, but not good direct data. So I will say, please refer to the AD website for the latest guidance. This continues to change. We're going to be updating the guidance. But the guidance here is really for patients who are already on a biologic therapy, they should not be stopped without speaking with their physicians. We don't want people to abruptly stop without kind of consulting anyone. The important thing is to really have a direct conversation, a one-on-one conversation with your patient to really weigh the risks versus benefits in that particular patient. So we don't really have a lot of evidence that everyone needs to be taken off. It's more that the discussion at the level of the patient should really be, why were they originally on the biologic? Because you can imagine if you had a young patient who had really severe psoriasis, over 30% body surface area, and you're worried that you take this patient off their biologic, that they might have such a big flare that they're going to end up in the ER, that's actually not a good outcome because you don't want them to end up in the ER. If in contrast, you have an older patient who might have other comorbidities and is on a biologic but does not have severe disease, that might be a patient that you'd be more willing to take off of their biologic because of the risk. So you really have to kind of think about it at the individual patient level. In terms of 
patients who are on biologic therapy who test positive for COVID-19, we do want you to take them off of the biologic therapy. You mentioned the importance of the COVID test in making the decision for our patients on biologics. So I wanted to ask our panel today about the COVID test, what we know so far about its availability and also its reliability, which I think has a lot of implications in terms of the estimates we are seeing coming out of the actual incidence of COVID infection. What do we know? I can't help but jump in to try to start answering that, although there are some on this call who, who might have actually even better information. But what I want to say is actually the first thing is there's not just one COVID test. There's many COVID tests. There's been a huge lag in the U.S. in testing, which really shouldn't go unsaid. And as part of that, many places have developed their own tests. Individual academic centers are running tests. The CDC is running tests. And they're all generally looking for COVID. The specific individual, each test sensitivity and specificity and positive predictive value, negative predictive value is not 100% clear. And I don't want to cite like, you know, there are anecdotal reports out there that like, oh, I heard that the test can be negative 30% of the time, even if you have infection. That might be true. We just don't have the data to provide listeners with factually accurate information about that. But the key point here is that there's actually a difference between testing and screening. And so what's happening in the U.S. is there's testing of high-risk symptomatic patients, often in settings where a test result will change their management. So there are many patients with presumed COVID who do not qualify for tests or get sent home being told they have presumed COVID. And so the true rate of actual infection is not really accurately reflected by the number of positive results. Also, our country is not doing screening. And so screening is different than testing. Testing is a diagnostic test. Screening is you're surveying the at-risk population with a test to see if someone has it. And so that's really what's happening in some of the kind of uh, countries abroad that have done a better job of kind of clamping down on this quickly is screening of asymptomatic patients if they're positive, then strict contact tracing and isolation. And I'm sure Scott can speak more to this than I can, but the U.S. is doing neither testing nor screening, particularly broadly. And so the numbers that people see don't reflect the numbers of patients with the disease. And that's why There should not be decisions made based on, oh, there's X many patients in my area or, oh, there's X many patients in my state. Everyone who's listening to this, there are multiples of however many patients you think are positive who actually have the virus in your area, and they are spreading it at an exponential rate. Period. I think you brought up a really important point, Misha, about the difference between testing and screening and the challenges of, of real test non-availability and certainly complete lack of screening and figuring that out. So I think that's a, a really important point. Some really important points. I'm so glad to have Scott Norton on this call as well. Scott, you've been a veteran in the field of infectious disease dermatology, and we've had you on dialogues many times in the past discussing the Ebola outbreak, the Zika outbreak, and now the COVID outbreak. So I've been wanting to ask you how this outbreak is affecting the practice of dermatology. What questions should we be asking? What visual findings, if any, should we be looking for? How should we be responding? Thanks, Shadi, for inviting me to participate in this dialogue. I'm going to go ahead and answer and add a comment about the testing. One of the things that this particular outbreak of COVID-19 is doing is it's changing the way that the public and the medical community thinks about public health issues. So with the question of testing, 
we are accustomed to thinking of tests as a diagnostic tool to determine whether a person has or does not have a particular disease. That's obviously very important when we see a patient who is ill and we have scarce resources that must go to the individuals who have the disease and have a severe presentation. But the points that were made by Misha and Esther are absolutely correct, is that we need to do screening and testing in order to get the epidemiologic data that tells us how rapidly this disease can be transmitted, how it can be transmitted, when a person has the virus, how long that person is capable of transmitting the virus, both before the clinical symptoms arise and perhaps even after the clinical symptoms bait. We need to know what the mortality rates are. And there are so many data points that are absolutely essential that we will find that many of the tests that are being used for COVID-19 will be done not for diagnostic purposes, but to screen a population and get us that information. Why is that so important? Well, we know that we have very limited resources from the PPE to the ventilators. And in order to uh, deploy that equipment to the right places, the right time, the right numbers, we have to obtain these data to let us know how we are going to marshal our resources. Historically, dermatologists have had an outsized role in the public health response to disease outbreaks. Although most of us regard ourselves as clinicians who care for individual patients and families, we've been absolutely essential in identifying the initial or sentinel cases of many disease outbreaks. The reason why I mention that is I want people to think of our job as important in identifying potential public health issues on a day-to-day -day basis, not just when there are worldwide pandemics. But as far as this particular pandemic goes, to our knowledge, the epidemiologic data are preliminary. And what about skin findings? As you said, we've seen in previous epidemics, such as the HIV epidemic, how dermatologists were in the front lines of helping diagnose it because of the visual signs. What about in this case? I think the challenge is that people are coming in short of breath. They're not coming in necessarily because they only have a rash, but I think it remains to be seen in my mind to be what is the true incidence of viral exanthem with COVID-19 because people aren't necessarily getting undressed and people aren't doing a full skin exam at those times. But I think you are correct that it's not necessarily what's bringing people into care for the first time. It gets hard to differentiate what's a viral exanthem due to co-infection, because we now know that patients who have COVID-19 may also have co-infection with RSV or influenza, that has been reported. And viral exanthems can happen with any virus. The morbilliform eruption in that setting, of course, has the differential diagnosis of viral exanthem drug eruption, among other potential entities. But it seems quite reliable that there may be an exanthem that has minimal prognostic significance in patients with COVID infection. And I think that will be borne out with time. So it sounds like the potential primary skin findings of COVID-19 have been somewhat eclipsed by the acute nature of other organ systems taking precedent and all the other variables that have been going on in this urgent situation and remains to be seen and described with greater discipline as we recover from this epidemic. 
My question at this point is, are we as dermatologists going to be called upon to help regardless of this because of other dermatologic considerations? For example, might there be occupational-related dermatoses or secondary effects of some of the treatments that are being used in this setting? And furthermore, some of us, depending on our practice setting, we're hearing increasingly may be deployed out of our standard practice of dermatology to assist in other areas of the hospital. So what are the considerations for dermatologists in light of these factors? So I can certainly speak to the redeployment experience just because in our department at Massachusetts General Hospital, the dermatology department faculty is getting redeployed. Uh, We are being redeployed to the front lines as coronavirus testers to the MGH testing center. And I think this is an important part of our role, which is that we have a significant amount of medical training. And many of us have mostly gone through medical internships. Some people have gone through a pediatric internship. But we do have the basic skills that can be helpful and be applied in other settings. So I do think it's an important duty to do these tasks when asked of us. And at least in our case, we're very lucky that Mass General is providing um, sufficient personal protective equipment for us to perform these duties. So I think that we all have different roles to play. And I think we need to kind of welcome those roles. But I will say, I, I really enjoyed a meme that I saw the other day that said it's possible to be both scared and brave at the same time. While we're waiting to learn more about a possible primary exanthem of COVID-19, we can expect to see patients who have the disease who have cutaneous findings, perhaps not directly related to the virus, but related to other treatments. There are many uh, medications that are being tested I checked clinicaltrials.gov about two weeks ago and saw that there are only nine registered trials for medications to treat COVID-19. I checked yesterday and there were 164 registered trials. And the, um, the types of medications that are being used just span the imagination of what we have in our medical armamentarium. So there's no doubt that we will see some cutaneous side effects of some of the medications. But I think also that our colleagues who are manning the ICUs may develop uh, rashes themselves, and and many of these will be occupational dermatoses. Uh, People are being told to wash their hands for 20 seconds, and if our colleagues are doing that dozens of times each day, there's likely to be uh, just the occupational irritant contact dermatitis that you get from extensive exposure to soap and water. We can anticipate that. There are occasional individuals who have reactions to the PPE. Sometimes we have uh, people with dermatographism from the tight bands of a uh, mask or some of the overgarments that people are putting on, and the rubber and the elastic compounds in some of the PPE can induce an allergic reaction. And then, of course, anyone who wears gloves, latex or non-latex, is at risk for some hand dermatitis as well. But one thing that concerns me also is that I've been reading more and more reports of people trying to use undiluted bleach to clean their skin or household surfaces and some of the industrial cleaning wipes to clean their hands. And those are not approved for use directly on the skin. And we will see many cases of irritant contact dermatitis from that. And one thing, just to go back to an earlier point about uh, dermatologists that are you know, potentially getting redeployed to different areas and people's concern about their exposures um, in different areas of the hospital. I know that Shadi herself has had some experience with exposures and kind of unintended consequences. So I was wondering, Shadi, if you could tell us a little bit more about that. 
Yes, I took care of patients involved in the outbreak that occurred in Boston and experienced the feeling that Esther talked about in terms of having to be scared and brave at the same time and saw firsthand the importance of taking care of each other in this situation as we take care of our patients. I want to share with my colleagues who are in the front lines now that I've actually been very impressed and grateful to see in my own hospital, Mass General's response to mobilizing and taking care of patients, and also taking care of our own staff that are going through this situation. And also the AAD's response in terms of mobilizing guidelines and being there for our membership and helping them take care of their patients and each other. I've also been incredibly grateful for my colleagues, the way that we've been reaching out to ask each other how each person is doing, how they're managing, giving each other advice. And I really want to emphasize the importance of our community in responding together and supporting each other to come through this. And with that, I'd like to thank our fantastic panel of experts. We're so lucky in the dermatology community to have this kind of expertise guiding us and to ask each of you if there are any final takeaway points that you would like to leave our listeners with. I would like to just provide a few nerdy facts that people might be interested in that I think may be useful information. The first is the reason why we choose the personal protective equipment that we do choose for this particular infection is basically because you are assuming that it has been shown that you would likely infect between two to three other people. So that is a behavior of a droplet-mediated infection rather than a true airborne infection. So this therefore dictates that the personal protective equipment that dermatologists would use would be a surgical mask and eye protection and a gown if coming into contact with a person under investigation or a COVID-positive patient. An N95 mask is indicated for those who are with patients under investigation or COVID-positive patients when an aerosolizing procedure is being performed. By definition, dermatologists don't tend to intubate or perform other aerosolizing procedures and therefore are unlikely to need N95 masks in our usual scope of work. The other point that I wanted to make that might be of interest to people is how much sustained immunity you have if you've become infected with COVID-19. So there is some data from studies in monkeys that suggest that you have at least a short immunity against becoming reinfected. However, in general, coronaviruses that we know well that tend to cause upper respiratory tract infections in humans tend to only have partial short-term immunity. So we don't actually know for this particular strain, the SARS-CoV-2, if you're going to have sustained immunity or short-term immunity, but it does look like short-term immunity is likely. And I would add, Lindy, I think this is real implications for us as healthcare workers. I know there's a number of universities across the country that are starting to look at developing antibody tests. And I think it will be really interesting as these come online in the coming weeks, potentially I, I foresee a future in the near future where antibody testing would be available and to understand, you know, for many of us could have been infected and had asymptomatic infection and, and not know it. So potentially knowing our immunity status, I think would be very helpful. As Lindy mentioned, of course, we don't know what that means in terms of how long our immunity might last, but I look forward to a future where we're going to be able to have that antibody test available for healthcare workers in particular. Another point is as we learn more about this, we've seen on a day-to-day basis, new guidelines and guidance coming out being posted on various websites. We encourage everyone to um, actively 
seek out information from the CDC website and from their state and local health departments on the current guidelines for your community. And the last point that I would like to make is just that we're in this together. I think that in some ways we are pulled apart and doing kind of the physical isolation thing, but I think in many ways that this is a way to build and strengthen relationships and friendships across our community, and that's something that's really struck me in the past two weeks. I completely agree. Well, thank you so much for reminding us of our resources, not the least of which is our friendships and our community. And thank you so much to our panel for joining us. Please stay tuned for the next part of our COVID series, Navigating Practice During COVID-19, AAD Resources, and Embracing Teledermatology. Thank you again to our listeners. Please stay safe and well. The American Academy of Dermatology has numerous COVID-19 guidance and resources on managing your practice, legislation and regulation, and teledermatology. Please visit www.aad.org for this information.